You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual The CEO of McDonald's, a man whose name I'd never heard before looking at today's papers, where technically I didn't hear it, I read it, but whatever, it doesn't matter. The CEO of McDonald's is out. Steve Easterbrook, who's credited with turning the crap food giant around, excuse me, the fast food giant around, he's no longer at McDonald's for one of the same reasons Katie Hill is no longer in Congress. No revenge porn was involved in this case. Easterbrook has an ex-spouse, but not a bitter and allegedly abusive one. Nothing like Katie Hill's soon-to-be ex-spouse. And Easterbrook wasn't the target of a right-wing smear campaign and didn't have personal private photos weaponized against him. Also, Easterbrook didn't resign. He was fired over the weekend after he engaged in a consensual relationship with an employee that violated company policy, the New York Times reported. The Washington Post emphasized in the headline on the front page that the relationship was consensual. McDonald's CEO fired for consensual relationship with employee, company says. So McDonald's really wants us to know this relationship was consensual. And so does Easterbrook, who emphasized the consensuality of the relationship to the Financial Times. But that's all they want us to know. And maybe that's really all we need to know. Easterbrook had a sexual relationship with someone who reported to him. He fucked up and he's out. Oh, no, wait. Easterbrook fucked it down. He fucked someone below him. His affair partner fucked up. And as we discussed recently, fucking down in the workplace, fucking someone who reports to you is not okay, and in many places now is a firing offense. Fucking up isn't okay either, although there's no indication Easterbrook's affair partner was fired. But the takeaway here is, you know, if you absolutely positively must fuck someone at work, like I said when the Katie Hill story was first breaking, your best bet is the lateral fuck. Fuck someone who's your equal. But you know what? Actually, scratch that. Today's lateral fuck is one promotion away from being a fuck up or a fuck down. So your best bet is to not fuck people that you work with at all. The rule Easterbrook admits to violating and Hill is alleged to have violated, both are relatively recent. Like the House of Representatives, which only banned sexual relationships between House members and staffers less than two years ago in response to the Me Too movement, and quite rightly so, McDonald's only banned relationships between superiors and subordinates a couple of years ago, too. And those are moves I support, even knowing, as I do, that making rules about who's allowed to fuck who isn't exactly foolproof. My whole gay life has been one big violation of rules. Consensual violations, but still violations. Anyway, less than 20 years ago, in 2000, one in five couples met at work. Today, that number is down to 10%. But still, even today, with 40% of all couples meeting online, and that number is rising, Stanford University is doing the research, and on the charts, it is a line pointing straight up. Still, one out of every 10 couples, still today, meet in the workplace. And the odds that all of those relationships, the one in 10, started as lateral fucks and remained lateral fucks the entire time seem pretty slim. Increasingly, people today who are having consensual sexual relationships with coworkers are kind of where gay people were 50 years ago, keeping it secret, hoping they don't get caught, hoping they don't get fired. But unlike persecuting people for being gay, banning workplace relationships does serve a social good. Mainstream culture, straight, heterosexist, patriarchal, that culture, 
for a long time held up the small handful of quote-unquote successful relationships that started in the workplace, workplace relationships that led to marriage and kids, mainstream culture's standard of success for romantic and sexual relationships. They held those up to justify not just tolerating sexual harassment in the workplace, but to justify sexual harassment itself in the workplace. And getting past that and putting an end to that, that is a social good that I can support along with the board of McDonald's. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, I speak with Dr. Alain Brunet, professor of psychiatry at McGill University, about his fascinating work on a drug that can be used to cure heartbreak. Sound too good to be true? You're going to want to listen to that segment on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I am a mid-20s female uh, living on the West Coast. So about a year ago now, I slept with one of my friend's ex-boyfriends. They had been broken up for over a year, but he was her college boyfriend, And it was only one time. It wasn't building or anything. It was just a stupid drunk night. And now I'm wondering, should I tell her or not? You do not have to tell your friend you slept with her ex. I think we should live in a world, and I'd rather live in a world where it wouldn't be a problem that you slept with a friend's ex-boyfriend. Actually, I live in a world where that isn't a problem. I live in gay land. Gays are a tiny percentage of the population. We don't have this luxury that straight people seem to have or feel entitled to around declaring all of our current and even our former partners or even anyone we ever had a crush on off limits to everyone else in our friend group or our wider social circle. That it's a violation of me and it's a betrayal of me if you sleep with the person that I was dating in middle school for five minutes you know, in gay land where there's so many fewer of us and, you know, we tend to be pretty sexually active. If all crushes, if all exes, if all hookups, one night stands were off limits to everyone in our social circle, everyone in our friend group, no one could ever get laid or no one could ever get laid without betraying everyone that they basically ever met. So you don't really see these bullshit games in gay land around, <laughs> oh, my God, you slept with my ex from college. You do see it in straight land. Your friend may have a negative reaction to this news, news that she's not necessarily even entitled to. This is her ex from college. It was years ago. You slept with him once. If you were dating him, eventually you'd have to let her know that you were dating him. And hopefully if your friend was a mature person, if your friend was the kind of person that I would want to be friends with or you should want to be friends with – She would remember who he was, think about who you are, and if you guys are a good match and you're a better match for him than than she was, she should congratulate you two on on finding each other and not be a big, stupid, whiny, titty-ass baby about it. So I guess I'm a little conflicted. On the one hand, I feel like it should be no big deal and you should be able to tell your friend about this thing that there's no actual pressing need or reason to tell your friend. On the other hand, I know that... Out there in straight land, it is a big deal to sleep with a friend's ex. And so it might upset the friendship. It might end the friendship if you told her. 
But then do you really want to be friends with someone who'd be so angry about you sleeping with a college boyfriend that the friendship would be imperiled? Might be a good way out of a not very healthy friendship with a not very healthy person. Hey, Dan, this is a 50-year-old cisgendered straight woman calling from New York. About two years ago, I got a text message from my husband saying, hey, baby, just got home, still in a daze from seeing you. And that's how I found out that he'd been having an affair for about a year at that point. So that was pretty awful, pretty devastating, pretty traumatic. And it was a betrayal that, on the one hand, I would not have ever imagined, but also, of course... I should have expected it. We had really settled into some pretty horrible habits with our sex life or lack thereof with just, you know, bad communication, resentment, all of the sort of day-to-day struggles that come with being married for 22 years with teenage sons and um, stressful jobs and lots of, lots of responsibility and not a lot of fun. So the good news is, is that we used that moment, um, the revelation of him having had an affair to turn our marriage into something pretty outstanding. And we have, you know, ended up with a really amazing marriage and a great sex life and great communication and happiness and fun and love and romance and all the things that seemed impossible before I got that text. So the before and after picture, the after looks pretty great. So, you know, I'm happy to be in this place. But having said that, I, and the reason for my call is that I just can't stop feeling betrayed. There's a part of me that is just can't get over it. I don't talk about it a lot with him. Um, It's been two years. I'm not bringing it up. But if I think about the fact that he snuck around and lied and betrayed me, that makes me really, really feel sad and angry. I had thought that it would be behind me by now. I had thought that I would just have gotten over it on some level because, as I said, our marriage has gotten pretty great, but it hasn't gone away. It's a distraction. It is not something that I want to be thinking about. So my question is, what do I do to really put it behind me? Is that something that I should just keep waiting for it to fade into the background? Is that naive? Do I need to, you know, do something more proactive to put it behind me? Is it something that I should be expecting my husband to take care of and acknowledge and work on with me? You know, we've both just kind of had this attitude of let's just focus on what we have and moving forward and, you know, not so much, you know, going back to the trauma part. So what do I do? Esther Perel, who I'm an enormous admirer of, author of The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity and Mating in Captivity, two books I think all married, partnered or want to be married or ever partnered people should read, made this observation that often in the wake of the revelation of an affair, you know, the marriage will end, the relationship will collapse, or the marriage will survive. And in many instances, the marriage will thrive after the revelation of the affair. 
because people will be suddenly radically honest with each other. They'll see each other through new and fresh eyes. They will have stared into the abyss together and they will have chosen each other again and chosen the marriage again. And I'm just going to quote Esther here. When I speak about the fact that out of a crisis, people can come out stronger, more resilient, more robust, and their relationships can too. Very quickly, I'm often asked, would I recommend people have an affair? So many people tell you that if they have a life-threatening illness, it gives them a new perspective on life, yet nobody would recommend to go get cancer. That's our observation. You know, sometimes we face, a, a, you know, a life-threatening illness and we survive it. Maybe we had a low chance of survival and we appreciate life in a new way. Well, in a sense, your marriage faced a similar extinction-level event, a similar crisis, and perhaps the chance of survival was low, but you both came through for each other. That doesn't mean you weren't traumatized. You know, if you survive cancer, you may remember the diagnosis and the tears and the fear and the chemotherapy and what was difficult about the treatments. Even if you survived it, even if you're completely healthy now, you will still feel in a sense betrayed by your body, traumatized by that experience. And you can have both those things at once, that appreciation for your life as it is now and that awareness of the precariousness of it and the risk it was in and the trauma that you went through. You and your husband are in a much better place. It sounds like yours is one of those marriages that was perhaps maybe not saved by an infidelity. Perhaps you guys could have coasted along for another couple of decades and been fine, but your marriage was because of the affair that shouldn't have happened and was a betrayal, was revitalized. And that's I'm me paraphrasing your own description of your marriage now, revitalized by this thing your husband shouldn't have done, by this way your husband betrayed you in the same way you may feel that your body betrayed you if you got cancer, that you survived. So what do you do with that? Well, I think you have to have some place where you can express that. You and your husband, maybe letting himself off the hook a little bit, have said, let's not look backwards. Let's look forward. Let's appreciate where we're at now and enjoy our marriage as it is now. But there has to be a time and a place, perhaps on a couple's counselor's couch, where you can talk about your feelings in a contained way. You know, not going to bring up the betrayal all the time, not going to rake him over the coals every day. Sometimes you're just going to eat those feelings and bottle them up and, you know, take that for the team because you like where your marriage is now and you want to keep looking forward and improving. But for your own sanity, there's got to be some, it sounds like there's got to be some times where there's accountability where you can express your ongoing feelings of betrayal. And, you know, you say you can't stop feeling betrayed. Well, you were betrayed. You don't ever have to stop feeling betrayed, past tense. The betrayal is in the past, but it exists. It was a traumatic event in the, your life and the life of your marriage. In a sense, it's a scar, and you can be conscious of it. And there may sometimes be lingering pain at the sight of that scar, and you should be able to express that, even to your husband. If you're worried about that sort of sloshing all over the place and ruining where you're at now, Agree that you're only going to discuss that or, you know, regurgitate those feelings or ask for his reassurance and ask for another apology when you guys go to a couple's counselor together. An appointment, you know, every few months now, every six months, maybe once a year or less, 
in the future, as you continue to rebuild, as your marriage continues to get stronger and better over time, maybe that would be the time and the place. And thank you for calling. You know, there's so many examples out there of when a affair comes to light of the, the marriage ending, the marriage collapsing. And I think we need examples of marriages surviving after an affair, but also thriving after an affair. And I'm glad that you called in to share yours, but also that it's nuanced and, and there are still feelings of hurt there and ambiguous feelings about the affair, that the affair is never going to be something that you celebrate or, or, or take delight in, but you can still celebrate and take real delight in where you guys are now as opposed to where you were then. Hey, Dan. One of my very, very best friends ever got into a relationship about four months ago. And ever since, things have been changing a lot. I live far away from home. My family is in another other country. And my friends are pretty much what built my support system here in the city that I'm at. So they're very important to me. It's really painful for me to lose friends. Uh, and she's one of my most important friends. She's the person I call when I'm in a crisis. We used to talk almost every day over the phone, go out dancing. And ever since she started dating this person, she's really careless. Like if I call her, she won't call me back. We used to have these little like routines of meeting here and there just to check in. She doesn't like try to make that effort to meet with me and just check in for a bit. So I don't know if to confront her. I don't know if just to let it go. When I confront people, I get really emotional. She knows that I care a lot about my relationship. So it's even more hurtful that this is happening right now. So I don't know. This friend, not your only friend, this friend had a lot more time for you when she was single. She literally just met a guy 12, 16 weeks ago. You say they've been going out for four months and they are in the throes of that perhaps new love where you're just kind of obsessed with that other person and wanting to spend all your time with that other person. And that's not forever, that kind of obsessive new love and wanting to spend all your time with another person. And it's not illegitimate. It often lays the foundation for a lasting, loving, non-obsessive relationship where you can actually, after a while, bear to be parted and focus again on your other friendships and your other relationships. Give your friend some time and space to enjoy this stage of her new relationship. Adjust your expectations. Lower your expectations of her. Demand less from her. Expect less from her. And you won't be as disappointed in her as you are now. Again, you say she is a friend and you have friendships and you place a lot of value on your friendships. Plural. There are other friends in your life that you should turn to now, perhaps make yourself more available to lean on, allow them to lean on you. When you talk to your friend who's still in the throes of new love, tell her, yeah, I know, I know we had sort of like a really intense connection and maybe kind of a romantic friendship. And I was eating up a little bit of emotional space that your boyfriend is eating up now and may have more of a right to as your romantic partner than perhaps I do. But I, I miss that time. I miss those connections. I miss our, our special thing. 
and say to her, you know, and eventually that will come back and I can wait and I'll be patient. But I just want to let you know that I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you met this guy. I'm happy you're enjoying this time with him. But I do kind of miss you, miss our thing. But I'll patiently wait for you to come out on the other side, which is not, you know, predicting the end of this relationship, which is not you saying you, you know, hope it ends so you can have her back. But in time, her need to be with this guy constantly and only, that will subside. And if you didn't allow yourself to get angry and bitter, if you didn't make a scene, if you didn't heap guilt up on her shoulders, if you genuinely expressed happiness for her, then your relationship can pick back up kind of where it left off. She will have more bandwidth available to you once she's either no longer with this guy. A lot of relationships of only 16 weeks run their course pretty quickly or she reaches the stage of having been with this guy for a year or more and not wanting to spend every waking moment actually needing to get away from him sometimes so that she can better appreciate him, better appreciate that relationship. The time will come when she will lean on you again and you will be able to lean on her again if you don't shit the bed now by blowing up at her. Don't blow up at her. Tell her you're happy for her. Let her know that you look forward to reconnecting again when she has a little bit more time. And until then... Work on your other friendships, work on your other relationships, hang out with some other people. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 25-year-old gay man, and I live in a country where I could get imprisoned or even lynched for saying that, so that's fun. But yeah, that's not what my question is about. My question uh, regards professional ethics and as it relates to the LGBT community. So I'm a writer and... Uh, one of the ways that I augment my uh, income until one of my books makes it onto the New York Times bestseller list is by providing proofreading services to other writers. The problem is the novel that I'm working on right now is by an American author and there are two very problematic characters and they're secondary characters. The gay guy, for instance, gropes every guy that walks by, whether they're gay or straight, whether they consented to it or not. Um, he's always talking about his sex life, even when sex is not the top topic of discussion. He's always guessing his straight friend's dick sizes and um, talking about like his asshole, like describing it in great detail and what butt plug he's wearing um, that particular day and wishing his straight friends were were gay so that they could fuck his ass. And the lesbian character is a little bit of an afterthought. She's made fun of throughout the whole book for loving them piss flaps <laughs> and by the end of the book she's cured of her lesbianism when she finds quote-unquote the right dick the thing is i wonder whether i should let my client know that this isn't how queer people move through the world i don't know whether i have some sort of responsibility to the community to correct him because i don't think he's being he was being malicious when he wrote all these things i just think it's ignorance and although he's been pleasant to me up till now, I don't know how he'll receive criticism from me, especially because it's not my job to criticize him. I'm supposed to look, strictly supposed to look for grammatical and typographical errors. So I don't know if I should say anything. And I just worry because um, this is how I make the bulk of my income and I get jobs based on referrals and uh, reviews. So if he writes me a bad review, that can negatively impact my income. So I was just curious what you think. Well, first, I think it's 
horrible that you live in a place where you could be arrested, imprisoned, or lynched if you were known to be gay. And you, of course, have to act in your own best interests and the interests of your safety at all times. You say that you're copy editing this book for an American novelist, apparently an American novelist who's never met a gay or lesbian person in his life. And you don't mention whether this novelist lives where you live or knows where you live. And you don't say whether you know what kind of a person that he is. So it's impossible for you to assess with any degree of certainty the risk you would be running, not just professional risks, but you know, risk to life and limb that you would be running if you confronted him about these queer characters that he's created and how not just implausible they are, but offensive they are. Would he write a review that would be publicly posted somewhere that outed you if you communicated with him about these characters from, you know, an appeal to lived experience that as a gay person, you know, gay people aren't like this and that it harms his book for him to to write a gay character like this, not just harms any gay person who might read this book or encourages straight people who read this book to view gay people negatively or harm them physically. So I don't think that you're professionally obligated to the LGBTQ community worldwide to climb out on that limb and risk your life or your freedom to save this American author idiot from his own stupidity and to improve the novel that he's written by making the gay characters less offensive, by making the, the novel less stupid and ridiculous than it is. If you've been hired to copy edit it and it's grammar and punctuation that you're being paid to assess, I'd stick with that if I were you. If you lived somewhere else and you were in a less precarious position professionally and socially, my advice might be different. But considering where you do live, considering the risks, not just professionally, but socially, you don't owe it to the LGBT community to put your life at risk to save this dumb fucking American author from his own stupidity. Hey, Dan. I am a 27-year-old gay male and living in the South, and I have a bit of a conundrum. I have been with my current boyfriend for two years now. Within the last six months, uh, his parents have moved to town. And come to find out, when we went to go to their housewarming party, it turns out that he is not out to them at all. To be fair to myself, I've made a policy to not date men who are still in the closet, just because it's very complicated, to say the very least. Um, however, to be fair to him, I never actually asked him if he was out to his parents because he's been so openly affectionate with me out in public. So I just presumed, uh, which was you know, a mistake on my part. Um, also, I guess to be even a little more fair, uh, when things are getting serious between us and we started to talk about you know, friends and eventually family, when it came to my parents, I said very plainly, they're abusive and manipulative and I just did not want to talk about them at all. And to which you know, he said, you don't want to talk about his parents either. 
So I just, again, <laughs> made the presumption that you know he had a very similar experience as I did, but it turns out that he was actually very close to them. He stayed in the closet while in college because his parents were paying for his tuition, but now that you know, he's out of school and you know for a while he was living in a different town from them, you know, it was a little bit the relationship was a little bit easier. Now my thing is I don't want to force him out of the closet at all. At the same time, I don't exactly want to be, you know, his dirty little secret either. I've asked him why he hasn't come out. He's basically skirting around the question, just saying that he's not ready and that he's not sure when he will be ready. So what can I do, if anything? Because again, I don't want to make him come out of the closet for me. I want him to do it because he he's ready to. But at the same time, I don't feel it's fair to either of us if we kind of have to hide that aspect of who we are around his parents and family. Yeah, yeah, you can't force him to come out of the closet, but he can't force you to continue to date him if you have a no-closet-cases policy, even if you only just became aware that he was closeted, that he hadn't told his parents, that his parents didn't know, his parents that he's close to didn't know that he was gay. Yeah, he can choose to continue to stay in the closet, and one of the consequences of that choice is potentially losing you because you don't want to be and don't have to be and are not obligated to be on a technicality, obligated to be for the rest of your life, his dirty little secret. You know, people like to say you can never force somebody to come out of the closet. Everybody has to come out of the closet on their own schedule at their own time when they're ready. And yet, if you know more than four out of the closet people, you will meet people who came out of the closet, not because somebody else forced them, but because they were afraid to lose somebody else or they just faced a crisis that was not 100% internal, where they then chose of their own free will to be out. They weren't forced out. They chose to be out because, in your example, perhaps, they didn't want to lose the person they'd been with for two years. They didn't want to lose their boyfriend, so they finally ovid up, gonaded up, and did something that they should have done years ago for fear of losing their boyfriend. They came out to their parents. That is a thing that happens. It is perhaps not ideal. It would have been ideal if he'd come out to his parents years ago, perhaps after graduation, if his parents were the type or he feared they might be the type who would cut him off and screw up his education if he was out to them and honest with them sooner, if his parents put him in a position where he had no choice but to lie to them through college. All right, he's through college. Now he can be out to them. And sometimes people coast along ducking a difficult conversation and not coming out just because they're afraid. Because, well, I just, you know, I'm going to throw this out there. I'm going to use the C word because they're not cowards, but in this area of life, a little cowardly, underestimating their parents, cheating themselves out of a more honest relationship with their parents for fear that their parents may have a negative reaction. And the bitter irony, the paradox in this, is if you are not out to your parents for fear of losing your parents, you gradually have to cut your parents so far out of your life to protect your closet that you lose your parents 
in the end anyway. For fear of becoming estranged when you tell them the truth about being gay, you become estranged because you've hidden the truth about who you are and who you love and who you're with. So yeah, have a conversation with your boyfriend. Give him six months. Give him a year. Tell him you will play this game that you will pretend not to know him in public or you will pretend just to be a friend in front of his parents, but not eternally, not for the next 30, 40, 50 years if you're together that long, but maybe for the next 30 weeks. And he's either out to them or you're out and he's out of this relationship. Hey, Dan, uh, 23-year-old male living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I had a question. I'm just kind of looking for some advice. So my last long-term relationship was ooh, four years ago. And ever since then, it was kind of a shitty relationship. That's where I made lots of mistakes, pretty traumatic. And so after that, I knew that I just needed to focus on my career. So I just went full court press, balls to the wall, just focusing on school, uh, volunteer work. Every single weekend was just spent doing all these things to, to get a handle on my career, this and that. So also just due to some upbringing, I felt like I had to mature a lot quicker. Um, having seen parents gone through a divorce, I uh, had to, you know, living, I was living in a fucking one bedroom apartment uh, with my dad. And then from there, it was just, I was hungry for this success. Anyway, I was always focusing and focusing on just this career thing, this career thing, and feel like I've kind of lost some time with uh, just dating and getting to know more girls, this and that. So after my relationship, it was, had some sporadic flings. Most of them were shitty. And so now I'm kind of finding myself in this position as I'm trying to dial things back a little bit, have a little more fun. I'm completely fucking lost as to just go about it. I've tried the online dating thing. Tinder hasn't worked out for me. Um, I'm trying to slow down on the drinking. So trying to avoid bars. Yeah. I mean, what would your advice be for someone my age to just kind of get out there, have a little more fun, uh, not get too serious and just in, enjoy my life while I'm young? Oh my God. You're 23 years old. You've got one relationship under your belt and some flings. You're perfectly normal, perfectly average. I hear every day from 23-year-olds who've never had a relationship, never had a fling. So clearly you are capable of having a relationship. You are capable of meeting someone and flinging with them. And you just need to be a little bit more confident and at ease with yourself. You say you don't like bars. You say you don't like the online thing, I'm going to propose a middle ground between the online thing and going out and getting hammered and picking people up, which is, you know, avail yourself of the available tools in the same way that you applied yourself professionally and career-wise and made that whatever it is, whatever your career is, congratulations, made that start to happen for you. You can now apply yourself, not romantically, because you don't want a romantic commitment right now, but sexually and that means, again, availing yourself of the available tools, which in this instance really is Tinder and OkCupid and Match.com and Farmers Only and Christian Mingle, whatever site works for you, whatever dating app or hookup app or personal site works for you, be on there. But don't be sucked into endless conversations and DMs with people on there. If you connect with somebody on Tinder, if you're a match, exchange a few messages and then propose a meeting 
not in a bar. Propose grabbing coffee or having a quick lunch just to meet face to face. That way you don't invest too much time in someone who may be catfishing you or may be lying or may not look like their pictures or you just may not click with in person. And that may involve a little bit of churn, but that effort is worth it because in that churn you will meet somebody who wants what you want. And you say you don't want a romantic attachment and you don't want a commitment right now. Perfectly fine. A lot of people your age, including a lot of women your age, don't want that either. But they do, particularly women, because men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters and many are dangerous. Women want to know enough of you and have enough of a sense of you to know that they're safe with you and that they can trust you. And so you may have to put yourself out there a little bit, make yourself available a little bit in a way that perhaps feels wrong or not quite dishonest, but perhaps you worry may be misread as, you know, romantic interest. And the way you control for that is just by using your words, like I like to say, and being honest. 23 years old, your career is just taking shape and getting off the ground and you're not interested in you know, the bandwidth emotionally or socially right now for a you know big serious relationship, but you'd like something casual. Say that. Of course, you might fear saying that because she might get up and leave, might walk out of the coffee shop. But you know what? If she does, well, that's an indication that she didn't want what you wanted and so you weren't a good match. And the next woman you meet up with and say that to may want exactly what you want. And that's the woman that you're looking for, that woman in the pile who wants what you want or the women in the pile who want what you want right now, which is some fun and perhaps getting out there, doing some shit and connecting sexually without a big commitment. It's not just guys who want those casual friends with benefits style relationships. There are a lot of busy young women your age who are in school working on their careers who want some intimacy, who want some sex, who want some connection, who want a buddy that they can fuck. Those are the women you got to look for. Apply yourself to finding those women in the same way that you've applied yourself over the last few years to making your career happen. Hey, Dan, I'm a 28 year old female living in the United States, heterosexual, and I work all the time. So it has been difficult to meet men. I have been using online dating for the past couple of years, and I have met some really great guys that I have ended up dating for a period of time. However, um, I have noticed that men, when you meet them online, even before the first date, are already talking about sex and going on vacation. Um, it's gotten to the point where I dread meeting these men um, because as a female, you don't really know who you're going to be able to be safe around. Um because, you know, date rape culture is a is a real thing. And it always takes me aback every time they start mentioning sex before we've even had our first face-to-face -face contact. It's uncomfortable also to tell these men, hey, um, I don't think it's time to talk about sex yet. There's a time and a place for that. Because then I come off as some sort of a prude, which I am absolutely not. Um, I've had my fair share of sexual partners. But I feel it's disrespectful to um, bring sex up before we've even met. Um, am I being um, way too, um, I don't even know what the word is, prudish, modest um, for this hookup culture? Um, I just don't feel like sex is something that should be on the table until you've gone out a couple of times and then it's okay to have a conversation about it. 
Online communications can be disinhibiting, and people who wouldn't toss sex on the table right away, if they met somebody socially, if they met somebody at work or through friends, maybe inclined or tempted or just thoughtless enough to toss sex out there right away with someone that they met on an online dating app or a hookup app. And, a, you know, there's a difference, I think, between dating apps and hookup apps. Tinder is much more of a hookup app, and people, I think, feel entitled and rightly so perhaps to talk about sex right away on a Tinder versus a match.com or your OkCupid or your farmers only. But if you're meeting people on dating apps and somebody tosses sex out there right away in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, you should just say to this person what you said to me, Hey, you know, I don't like to talk about sex, not approved, but you know, talking about sex with somebody right away before I've even met them face to face seems a little bit, you know, cart before the horse. Maybe we can leave that for after our first couple of meetings. Perfectly legitimate. Say that. And if the guy reacts badly, don't meet up with him. He's thrown up a red flag. You've clearly stated a perfectly reasonable boundary and you've said so in a kind way. Hey, that's fine. I'm totally into sex, not a prude, but maybe let's wait till we meet up before we start talking about sex. And if he reacts like a spoiled brat, well, not only wouldn't you want to have sex with a spoiled brat, you wouldn't want to waste your time having a coffee date with a spoiled brat either. So in a kind of distressing but bank shot way, that person who reacted badly to what you said when you threw that out there has done you a favor. You can get busy blocking them and talking to somebody else on a dating app who is more on the same page you are about when to raise the subject of sex. And you've had some success. You say you've had some success on dating apps, meeting nice guys and going on dates and having relationships. So rather than focus on the handful or more than the handful or the plurality or even the majority of guys who rush to the sex topic a little too quickly for your comfort, focus on the guys who don't. Block the guys who do sooner rather than later. Don't waste time on them. Don't make an investment in them. Instead, focus on the guys who aren't doing that thing that makes you feel uncomfortable and disinclined to meet them. Rather, go off and meet the guys who do make you feel comfortable and leave you inclined to meet them. We talk a lot about heartbreak on this show. We talk a lot about how you get over breakups. So when I saw the headline at wired.co.uk, how a PTSD expert developed a viable cure for heartbreak, I knew we had to have that expert on the show. Dr. Alain Brunet, psychologist, professor of psychiatry at McGill University and the creator of what's known as reconsolidation therapy, potentially a cure for heartbreak. Hello, Dr. Brunet. How are you? Hello, uh, Mr. Savage. I'm very good. Thank you. So tell us about this PTSD cure that you have applied now to traumatic breakups and, and, to, and to heartbreak and how it works. Well, reconciliation therapy is a, um, a, a six-session therapy that we've been developing over the years um, at the Douglas Research Center. I'm a scientist practitioner, which means that I my job is to, to conduct research in the field of psychotherapy. So um, we've been trying to weaken the strength of an emotional memory for several years. And eventually, um, we became very successful at this and treated hundreds of people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And then we became interested in widening uh, the field of application of this new treatment. 
And it turns out that we have developed the, the technology and the capacity to weaken uh, pretty much any emotional memory which elicits uh, symptoms of distress that would, in other words, bring someone to, to seek professional help. So it seemed like quite a natural thing to try to help people who have undergone um, a romantic betrayal, which which is how we call the people that we recruit in our study. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that they are suffering from an adjustment disorder and they would have sought professional help. So uh, we've been offering this novel uh, experimental treatment for a few years now and I've obtained quite uh, some good success. And I need to mention here my doctoral student, Michelle Lanigan, who recently uh, defended her thesis at McGill using uh, this this new treatment with her patients. For heartbreak. For romantic betrayal, which can include heartbreak. So explain how reconsolidation therapy works. You say it's a six-session treatment program. It's not just talk therapy. No, actually, there's very little talk. Reconsolidation therapy evolved from our most recent understanding in the field of neuroscience and how memory works. So when you form and when you when you when you undergo a new experience, you form a memory of that experience. This memory begins to be formed within minutes and takes two to five hours to become what we call consolidated. And once the memory is consolidated, it is deemed to be permanent and it has been transferred from your working memory to your long-term memory, a little bit like ROM and RAM, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so reconsolidation therapy uh, consists in recalling a memory and trying to weaken it with uh, a drug that we call a reconsolidation blocker. Every time you recall a memory, it needs to be saved again to long-term memory storage, which means that every time it needs to be saved again, there is a window of opportunity to try to interfere with that recording. And that's exactly what we attempt to do with propranolol. Propranolol is an old drug. It's, uh, it's no longer under patent. It's, it's a drug for heart disease, and it has certain properties that we've been uh, we've been um, interested in, and essentially, it weakens the the emotional memory. In other words, you still remember the whole event, but it is less emotional. And in as much as your symptoms emanate from that memory. If you weaken the strength of that memory, your symptoms will decrease. It's the same thinking than in the case of PTSD. So you experience a traumatic event and you have symptoms that emanate from this memory. And if we decrease the strength of that memory, we will decrease your symptoms. So when you say interfere with that recording, you have a session where the patient or the heartbreak sufferer, the PTSD sufferer, is is administered this drug, and then they recall this memory. And because that drug is in their system, they won't remember it as intensely or they won't remember it as traumatically because the drug flattens them out emotionally. How how does the drug interfere with the recording? It doesn't erase the memory. It's not like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Memory isn't gone. It's just remembered differently or felt differently in memory? 
it's better than eternal sunshine. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's better, because you still remember everything. It's not true that most people want their memories to be erased. The fact is that most people want to remember and keep their memories. They just want the memories to stop hurting. And so reconsolidation therapy is a mixture between a recall procedure and a drug called propranolol. The drug alone by itself will not work. And the recall procedure by itself will not work. This is a novel transdisciplinary treatment, which combines a, a, a mild form of psychotherapy, if you like, with a medication. And it is the combination of the two which is effective. So you want to know how it works more specifically? Yes, please. Well, we have people write an account of their emotional memory on the first visit, and then we have them read it to us under the influence of propranolol, which has been taken, uh, ingested one hour earlier. And we do this on six occasions. And in, in each treatment, we have a number of uh, specific instructions that we give to the patient to make sure that the memory is really reactivated. So that there are some active instructions that we give the patient to make sure that the memory will really unlock and uh, become vulnerable again to uh, the drug. And so we do this six times, and every week we give the patients um, a self-report questionnaire, mm -hmm. which allows us to really gauge their improvement. And typically, over the course of a, a six-week treatment, people uh, improve dramatically. And actually, most people um, are feeling much better after four treatments. And after six treatments, we have a, a, a very... Um, very interesting um, success rate. And so uh, doing these studies, have you done control groups where some people just recounted the memory but weren't given the drug and others were given the drug but didn't recount the memory? So in terms of the method, we, we've, uh, we've really tested all the mechanics of it with PTSD patients. Mm -hmm. So all, most of that, most of that uh, uh, has been investigated with PTSD patients. That who suffer from a, an even more emotional memory, if I could say, because they were literally confronted to to death. It's a, it's a confrontation with death, and so um, we we've done all those uh, all those tests. We've 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 completed several randomized controlled trials. One of them was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2018 and consisted in comparing the recall procedure performed either under placebo or under the reconsolidation blocker, propranolol. And we, we showed that uh, those who did the recall procedure under propranolol improved much more than those who did it under placebo. Can I run my uh, getting over your broken heart techniques by you and get your professional opinion? You could. <laughs> I, I always recommend pot and ice cream in that order uh, and getting out of the house and hanging out with your friends and going to the gym. 
Do you think uh-huh. that would be effective? Maybe not as effective. Uh, and is there a, are there degrees and scales here? Is this uh, treatment going to be recommended, or would you recommend it to anybody who's ha- who's had a run of the mill breakup, or is this for secret second families? Is this for you know ran off with my sister? Is this for you know super traumatic breakups? And some breakups are incredibly traumatic but sometimes i think when we're in the throes of a uh, even a kind of a routine breakup we may experience it as traumatic for the first few weeks and then look back and not feel as traumatized as we did the night it happened you know i think that uh, many people trivialize breakups uh certainly uh, not you i'm sure of that but we all know that breakups uh, is the fabric uh, with uh, with which greek tragedies have been made and uh, who would dare to say that uh, a Greek tragedy does not portray something very profound and very, uh, you know, the human, uh, about the human suffering? So uh, we've been interested in working with people who suffered a romantic betrayal. So this means that there was really uh, a major letdown and even a deception in, uh, in, in this type of breakup. And so I would not recommend this type of treatment for the run of the mill type of breakup. And I think that you may have several suggestions for those people. <laughs> but I do. And I, I and I think that they are worth trying. But if you um if you are experiencing a more severe breakup uh, which involves some kind of betrayal, you are probably you would probably uh, uh, receive a diagnosis from a, a professional, a mental health professional. And that diagnosis would likely be adjustment disorder. And so we've been offering this type of treatment to people suffering from adjustment disorder. And the people uh, were profoundly satisfied with this treatment. So uh, if there's anybody out there listening who feels that they qualify, that perhaps they're suffering from an adjustment disorder, that their breakup really was mm-hmm. traumatic, and they might be interested in receiving this treatment, where do they have to go? Mm-hmm. Online or how can they find their way to this treatment if they're interested? They, uh, they can call us at 514-761-6131, extension 3492, and they can leave a message on our confidential voicemail. We also have uh, a Facebook page uh, called Surviving Romantic Betrayal, Healing Heartbreak 101. Um, So those are the two places where they can most easily find us. And otherwise, if they want to Google me or, you know, there's also a lot of material out there on the web. But we are still accepting and recruiting study participants. You know, we, we will gladly answer all requests that we receive. Dr. Alain Brunet, psychologist, professor of psychiatry at McGill University and creator of the Reconsolidation Therapy. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. It was a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener. Bye, guy living out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, me and my husband have an open relationship, and it's fine. We're real happy, in fact. Uh, recently, I was approached by a friend who was female and asked to <clears throat> have a relationship. Well, not a relationship, just friends with benefit situation. Anyways, they're good friends of ours. Both my husband knows about it, her husband knows about it, and it's been fairly good. 
The only reason I'm calling is because recently my husband, while talking to a friend, let it slip the name of the person that I was sleeping with. Now, in the past, we've had hookups and stuff, but most have been through apps. And so I didn't memorize those people's names, and those names never came into conversation. The problem is, is the person he was talking to doesn't like the person that I slept with, and she does not like him. Uh, I talked to my husband, and I was very upset because, I mean, he can talk about my sex life all he wants. That's an open book, and I've never been ashamed of being open or any of that, but he should never have dropped this person's name. And he's assured me, A, he's sorry, we had a long talk about it, and B, nothing is going to happen to it. But I didn't think anyone would find out, you know, because when I told him, I didn't think he would tell. And it was nothing malicious, but now I'm worried about this. And my thought is, is that I should shut down the sexual part of this friendship because I don't want there to be anything else that might accidentally slip. I'm worried about telling this, this our friend because that will crush them, that their confidence was destroyed in that sense. And I don't want to lose friends. I'd rather have friends than fuck buddies. And I want to handle this in a way that turns out fine. Part of me says to just ignore this, but because, oh, nothing's going to happen to it. But that's a dumb way to look at it, because I don't know what would happen. I can't see the future. I'm not upset with my husband. I'm not mad at him, and it hasn't destroyed our relationship. I just don't want to hurt the other people involved. And I don't know how to handle this if I need to do damage control. Or if I don't. You say you live in a small town. Gossip gets around in a small town. Your husband accidentally and not maliciously dropped this person's name as someone that you were sleeping with to a mutual enemy, a frenemy, someone that your husband knows and likes, but who despises this woman that you're sleeping with. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is this going to get back to the woman that you're sleeping with? And can it harm her? Can this person weaponize this information and use it to harm your married to somebody else, friend with benefits? And if that's the case, if it's going to get back to her and or if it can be weaponized, you need to get out in front of it. You need to go to her and say, look, something terrible happened. My husband, with whom I share everything, accidentally mentioned your name, not knowing that this person knew you and put it together and figured it out just from your first name or first and last name, which wouldn't be hard to figure out. And I feel terrible about it, but I don't want you to be blindsided if this person spreads gossip or if this person comes after you somehow with this information. And uh, you say you live in a small town. You don't say what any of you do. You know, if she's just a small business owner or just, you know, a person who happens to live in this small town and telecommutes to some big city, there's probably not a lot that can be done to harm her except for, you know, idle shitty gossip and side eyes from the villagers. But if she's the pastor's wife and this gossip, if spread, could upend their lives and threaten their livelihood, well, then she really needs to know about it as, as soon as possible. And you say, you know, you might want to just downgrade this to a friendship again, but you've already fucked this person and that's already out there. You can't unfuck this person. Reverting to a friendship isn't going to extinguish this gossip or its potential harm if indeed 
being gossiped about could threaten your friend, could threaten her husband in some way, existentially or professionally in this community. You can't unscrew that particular pooch. So you're just going to have to go to your friend and tell her what happened and apologize. Maybe your husband can tag along and he can apologize personally. If not, do you think that might be explosive? Then you can apologize profusely on your husband's behalf and give her a heads up. Let her know that this person who doesn't like her much knows this about you too. You also could go to this person that your husband dropped her name in front of, who is a friend of your husband's, and appeal to their better angels. Also, you can point out that them running around gossiping about this and attempting to harm this person they don't like with this information isn't just going to screw up the life of this person that they don't like. It's also going to screw up this person that your husband blabbed to, his relationship with your husband and his relationship with the two of you. So if they decide to weaponize this information, to use it as a cudgel, to beat this person that they don't like, they won't just have, you know, one old enemy on their hands that they have an even worse relationship now than they used to. They'll have two brand new enemies on their hands, you and your husband. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescues. I'm a bisexual woman from the Midwest calling for some advice from my father. He and my mother have been married for 30 years, but in the past five or so years, my mother has become extremely mentally ill. She has been in and out of inpatient treatment facilities for an eating disorder. She also has PTSD for time spent in the combat zone and several other unnamed issues. At this point, it doesn't seem like she has much of a will to live, and she is a shadow of the woman that raised me. My dad seems to me more like a friend than a daughter a lot of the time, which can have its ups and downs, but right now he has conveyed to me that he's very conflicted. He is the sole provider for my mother and does not wish to leave her. However, he is looking for some companionship to stay sane. Do you have any recommendations for him? He's having trouble because a lot of the people that he meets don't understand the situation or think it's immoral for him to be dating or trying to find any companionship. Are there dating websites for people in similar situations? There aren't, so far as I know, any dating websites out there specifically for people whose partners are mentally ill or incapacitated in some way, perhaps suffering from Alzheimer's or early onset dementia. And maybe there should be because there are lots of people out there in your father's shoes. There are lots of people out there, particularly as Americans age, particularly as more Americans experience, confront, encounter, suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's who have partners that they don't want to abandon, that often that they are sole providers for and caregivers to, and yet they long for companionship and are often judged and judged harshly by people who don't understand what it's like to be in that situation, to want to continue to be the provider and caretaker that your spouse needs now, but what your spouse needs now is not the lover that, that you once were and can't provide you and you can't provide them with that intimacy that we all uh, on some level crave and require. And I think people who judge men in your father's position and women in your father's position harshly just don't know what they're judging about, just don't know what they're doing and so I would encourage your father to not be ashamed, and I would encourage your father to put himself out there and be very honest and blunt about his circumstance, because he is not alone. There are a lot of people out there with partners who are chronically ill, 
who are mentally ill, who, again, have Alzheimer's or early onset dementia. And those relationships have shifted from, you know, lovers and intimate partners to caregiver relationships. And caregivers sometimes need care themselves. They need intimacy. Sometimes they just need sex. And if your father puts all that out there on a dating profile and is unashamed about it and puts it out there, other people, women who have similar challenges, who face similar problems at home with their partners and are doing right by their partners or not abandoning their partners or staying with their partners, but need some release, need some intimacy, need that connection that your father no longer can have with his wife. They also need that with someone and can possibly have that with your dad. Considering there are so many different varieties of fetish kink dating apps out there, farmers only, Christian mingle, dating apps for people looking for thirds, for unicorns, for three-way partners, there really ought to be a dating app out there specifically for people who are married and got to do what they got to do to stay married and stay sane and are demonstrating, even as they quote-unquote cheat, for which they are judged harshly and unfairly, they're demonstrating a higher kind of loyalty. You know, the perverse, you know, and who am I to point a finger and call something perverse, but I'm going to do it right now. The perverse thing I hear said about people like your dad and your dad's situation is that he should do the right thing. If he wants to date, if he wants to get out there, he should divorce that's the right thing, to abandon your mother in this state and at this stage of their relationship, to abandon her, to divorce her, to leave her. Then he's free. This is how irrational people are about monogamy in the context of a marital relationship, that they consider it a greater disloyalty to cheat than to leave, than to abandon someone in your mother's circumstance because – as is often the case with monogamy, people are more committed to the concept and the ideal of monogamy than they are to their partners. Your dad is committed to your mom, committed to taking care of her, committed to being the provider that she needs and the caregiver that she needs. Because of your mother's illnesses, and I'm very sorry for your mother's decline, he is in a sense released from the monogamous commitment that he made to her because that's not what they're marriage or the commitment is about anymore. And I hope your father finds the companionship that not only he deserves, but he needs. And it's in your mother's own best interest that he find because of that kind of occasional release. And I don't mean sexual release. I mean, being able to be with somebody and just be intimate and chill and hang out and go to a movie, go to dinner, maybe also have sex. If that release makes your father a little bit saner, if it helps ground him, then he's going to be a better husband for your mother right now than he would be otherwise. Hi, Dan. I'm a, let's see, cis-het, middle-aged white lady living on the East Coast. And I got divorced a couple of years ago, and I have a question about dicks and the functioning of them. I've noticed uh, since I've been out there dating and sleeping with a few people that there's just seems to be a lot of um, erectile dysfunction. And I can't tell if it's the age of the dudes that I'm with, which is my age, like early 40s, or if, if, it, if there's a turnoff thing. I don't know. Like uh, I, I, my ex-husband, for all our issues, has 
dick always got hard when he wanted it to and stayed hard for a long time. And I'm not really sure how to approach it. I definitely know it's sensitive and I wouldn't want to, you know, injure anyone's feelings, but is there a best practice here? Maybe it's the commercials. There are so many ads on television for erectile dysfunction, not advertising erectile dysfunction, not promoting erectile dysfunction, promoting treatments, cures, pills to address erectile dysfunction. But maybe that's freaking men out. Maybe it's psyching men out. Look, you're in your 40s and you are sleeping with and hooking up with guys in their 40s and 50s, which is basically the prime age for the onset of erectile dysfunction. And erectile dysfunction can be physiological. It can also be psychological. And a guy who stumbles once, who stumbles and falls, who doesn't have the erection that he wants right when he wants it and when he's used to having it without a thought, you know, he can get nervous about next time and then be thrown out of the the moment sexually. You know, if you begin to worry about whether you're going to have an erection, you're a whole lot less likely to have an erection. And a guy in his 40s or 50s who can't get hard that first time as opposed to his teens, 20s, 30s, is going to have a harder time getting hard next time if he succumbs to that performance anxiety, if he can't just shrug it off. Here's how you can help them shrug it off. Here's the best practice. When a guy can't get it up in the moment, as I like to say, don't bust out a tiny little coffin and have a funeral for his dick. Don't make everything that you're about to do contingent upon his dick. You know, one of the things we're constantly telling people out here in sex advice land is that you should vary your sexual routine. You should mix it up. It shouldn't all in straight land just be PIV intercourse. That if you have a broader definition of sex, and that includes mutual masturbation, that includes rolling around, that includes fantasy play, that includes mutual oral sex, that you'll have a more interesting and varied sex life. And you'll have more sex. If you define more things as sex and you can do more things, you're going to have more sex. It also means that if a penis isn't hard right when you want it to be hard, right when you want to begin the PIV or PIB, but intercourse, that there's a whole lot of other things that you can do. And often if you take the focus and pressure off the man, if you take the focus off the dick and you do something else for a few minutes, like, oh, I don't know, cunnilingus, he becomes unselfconscious. He gets back into the moment and then suddenly he's hard again. Also helps – and sometimes this is a problem. Sometimes people have a hang up about this. Sometimes people call me and they're worried because their partners were stroking themselves before they began to have intercourse. That just the rolling around and the making out and the foreplay in whatever form it took wasn't enough to make their guy hard. And he was stroking himself before he plunged in. That uh, actually helps. If somebody's having trouble obtaining an erection, you know, there are pills you can take, you can pivot to other things, do other things that don't require an erection. The guy can also allow himself to, and it, guys will have an easier time allowing themselves to do this, that their partners don't freak out about it. The guy can jack off. The guy can stroke himself until he gets that erection and then dive into the PIV or the PIB or whatever you wanted to do with the P. So, Next time you're with somebody and he's having a hard time getting an erection, suggest other things you might do and might enjoy in the absence, at least temporarily, of the erection, and make sure that he understands that you don't have a problem with him stroking himself to get himself hard so that you can jump on his dick. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman living in the UK. I'm married to an amazing man who I love with all my heart, and we have great sex. 
The problem is I'm still obsessed with the guy I dated for two months right before I met my husband. I dated this guy when I still lived in the U.S. Dated is a generous term. We mostly spent entire weekends together getting drunk and having sex. Sex was the best of my life, and it was pretty much nonstop. I've never been so physically attracted to someone. But he was a very selfish and emotionally immature person. In the two months we dated, we broke up twice because I would get upset at how he was treating me and lash out, and he would dump me. The quote-unquote relationship brought out the worst in both of us. Three weeks later, I met the man who is now my husband, and the two men couldn't be more different. My husband is kind, loving, generous, loyal, thoughtful, and really, really cute. But after a couple of months, this ex reached out. At first, it was just friendly. I met up with him and some friends for a drink a couple times before I moved to the UK, and we continued to text. But over time, the text went from friendly to flirty to explicitly sexual. It's now been nearly three years since we broke up, and the truth is, I loved that this insanely hot guy, who frankly really hurt me when we broke up, still couldn't seem to get over me. Once he told me he'd never felt connected to someone else the same way, physically or emotionally. He dated and hooked up with people, but it never stopped him from texting me. Then recently he got a girlfriend and he essentially told me to stop talking to him and have a nice life. I was hurt and also incredibly jealous that he'd finally found someone who made him want to stop texting me. Also, the night before he told me this, he'd gotten drunk and sent me some very explicit late night messages. I lashed out and responded with a rude comment along the lines of, good luck, I hope your new girlfriend enjoys being treated like shit. He blocked me on social media after that and I'm pretty sure he blocked my phone number too. It's been a month since that happened, and I still can't stop thinking about him and hoping he'll reach out to me. I can still see his Instagram post through a different account he doesn't know about, and he recently posted a picture of himself and his new girlfriend looking very happy. I burst into tears. I know rationally that this is totally insane. I'm married to an amazing person who I love, and I love our life together. And while I loved the ego boost this ex gave me, it was ridiculous to think he'd never get over me. Now it feels like I'm the one who hasn't gotten over him. I know that if my husband ever found out about this, he'd be devastated. And I know that what I did was wrong, but I still can't stop thinking about this guy and hoping he and his girlfriend will break up and he'll start texting me again. I've done enough therapy to know that this has everything to do with a lifelong fear of being replaced by people I care about. And despite everything I did care about him, Dan, what do I do? Do you have any tips for how to forget about this guy and put this fucked up situation behind me? Yeah, one tip right off the top of my head. Stop looking at his fucking Instagram. Dan, Dan, the wound is open and bloody and won't close. And I keep picking at it and digging around in it. Stop looking at this guy. And you're going to have to reason with yourself. You're going to have to tell yourself that unlike your husband, who you've been with for some years, you were with this guy for eight tumultuous, hot and sexy weeks. You didn't even get to the fart in front of each other stage. You didn't pass out of, you know, the although the relationship sounds tumultuous and dramatic, you didn't pass out of the infatuation stage. You didn't pass out of that rapturous, early, hot, sexual, intense stage. You weren't with him long enough to get to maintenance sex. You weren't with him long enough to get to farting in front of each other. You weren't with him long enough. You never lived with him, so you weren't with him or lived with him long enough or at all to get to arguing about chores or housework or laundry or dishes. You never got to the daily sort of sand in the gears grind that's a part of all long-term relationships. And you're a rational person. You know this is true. But it's not just the ego boost you know, that this guy's still carrying a torch for you, but it's not just the ego boost that this absolutely positively is. It's also that fantasy about some other life that you could have lived. 
that you love your husband, you're happy with your husband, but there was this other bend in the road. There was this turn you could have taken. There was this other life you could have had. And we all fantasize about those other lives we could have had and with other partners. And the ability for us to stay connected on Instagram, on Twitter, via text, if we have a friendly relationship with an ex or you know somebody who could have been the person that we wound up with for the long term, it can keep that fantasy alive in a, in a real and very intense way because it's a participatory fantasy because you know they're fantasizing on some level about the same thing too. The other road you could have taken, the other life you could have had. And because all of your time with this guy was in the infatuation stage, because all of your time with this guy was in the, the rapturous early sort of fuck, fuck, fuck each other's brains out constantly stage of a new relationship, some part of your reptile brain, some irrational part of your reptile brain is telling you that it all would have been like that. It would have been like that forever and ever and ever as compared to your relationship with your husband, which, you know, probably isn't like that now. But your relationship with this guy wouldn't be like that now either. And odds are good that if you met up with him again, that that intensity wouldn't be there. That you're both nostalgic for that moment that you two came together and the people that you were then. You're not those people anymore. You might not, and it might help if you told yourself you definitely wouldn't, connect in the same way or on the same level. You're visiting a happy, intense, and very erotic memory. You have this hot dude really in your spank bank, but because you're – or were – were reconnecting with this dude digitally on your phone, on your device. It was alive in a different and more dangerous way. Well, he met somebody. He's got a new girlfriend. He blocked you. Please have the decency, have not, not the decency, just have the sense. If not to block him, to stop looking at his Instagram, to stop keeping the memory as intensely alive as you have been keeping it as these interactions with him have been keeping it. You're entitled to your memory. You're entitled really even to love people that you were with in the past and broke up with and remember those relationships fondly. And you're entitled on some level, even to fantasize about the relationship you could be in now with someone else. If you had stayed with that person, as opposed to married the person that you're with. Anyway, circling all the way back to the beginning of my response, stop looking at this motherfucker on Facebook. Go fuck your husband's brains out. And every once in a while when you're fucking your husband's brains out, close your eyes and pretend it's him. You're also entitled to that fantasy. But keep it to yourself and here's hoping your husband's not a listener. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Why underscore just because tweets. Ah, fake Dan Savage. I listen to you every week, and yet I let myself fall into a lengthy pre-meet texting situation. There was zero chemistry in person, and I wound up hurting a nice guy. People, listen to Dan. The man knows what he's talking about. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you for the endorsement. Why just because, of course, that Tweet references my advice not to have lengthy, drawn-out DM text conversations with people you've met on dating apps before your first initial meetup. Establish a connection, establish attraction with a few text messages, and then propose a quick coffee to make sure that you are attracted to that person in person as well so that you do not waste that person's time or your own. Repeat tweets. Part of me wants to call into the Savage Lovecast and tell at fake Dan Savage that some vasectomy scars are indistinguishable from standard scrotal wrinkles, that that may be 
TMI. There's no such thing as too much information here on the Savage Lovecast. That's why I'm reading your tweet and your call at 206-302-2064 would have been perfectly welcome and probably made it into the response calls at the end of the show. And M. Fulkerson tweets, just finished my first Savage Lovecast Magnum episode, courtesy of an early Christmas gift and owed the bliss of extended interviews and ad-free commutes should have gone Magnum ages ago. Thanks for everything you do at Fake Dan Savage. You're welcome and thanks so much to the person who gave the gift of the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can do at savagelovecast.com. And I hope you continue to enjoy all of your gifted Magnum episodes Mr. Fulkerson. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, how you doing, Dan? I just listened to your recent episode. I want to say 679. And I'm calling in regards to the woman who has cheated not once, but twice. And it almost seemed as if you dismissed the fact that she has been emotionally unfair to this man, you know, and one thing that I'm used to hearing you say is communication. There was no indication that there was any type of communication or any type of her taking um, ownership of her play and all of this. I really think you missed the ball on that aspect. I love your show though, but I really think um, the fact that we're not um, respecting this man's position in all of this just speaks more on how we ignore the fact that men have feelings too. Being cheated on does hurt. There could be more that goes along with this, and I wish you would have pried in a little bit more on that aspect. Calling about episode 679, um, the husband who wanted to get his wife to explore her fantasy life more, and Dan explored some of the language that the husband chose. Um, one thing I'd like to consider, like him to consider, is to stop saying that he wants to help his wife. He wants to help himself. Sometimes men try to roll this out that they are trying to help their partner when really the helping is not for them. So just consider reframing your language, sir. Uh, women can tell the sort of selfish trickery. It's not cute. That often backfires. Hi, I'm calling the caller asking in 679 about a gender reveal party. I always wanted to do one. You know, you have the balloons, you pop it, and out comes, instead of a bunch of confetti of pink and blue, out comes one little paper. You pick it up off the ground, you open it, and you say, gender is a social construct. That is what I would recommend. Say to your brother, I will plan this, I will do this, and then have that happen. That will really show him that not to invite you to any more of his things, but I do think it would be hilarious. All right, we're going to leave it there. If you have a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Please call us with your questions and your comment. You can also record your question on your phone and send it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also send those questions to mail at savagelove.net. The calls that we get that people record on their own phones are of higher quality. They're better for listeners. So if you have the technology, if you are adept with technology and you want to make a voice memo on your phone and email it to us, we would appreciate that. If you like my rants at the top of the show, you're going to want to listen to me blab and spar with my coworkers at The Stranger about the news of the week on the Blabbermouth podcast out every Wednesday. And this week, my dirty little film festival, Hump, opens with all new films in Seattle, Olympia, Portland, San Francisco, and new this year, Vancouver, British Columbia. You can catch 
watch a whole new lineup of short, dirty, smart, funny films, and then vote for your favorites. This is a year, a hump year you are not going to want to miss, and tickets are selling fast. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets for the opening festival, and keep your eye on humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump, 15th Annual Hump, is coming to you, to a city near you next year. All right, follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Alain Brunet on Twitter at Dr. A. Brunet McGill. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.